0: From 89.7 WUWM Milwaukee's NPR, this is Like Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, Capital Notes explores the politics of medical marijuana, and we'll share the latest on redistricting. Then we'll learn about the impact the sitcom Happy Days has had on Milwaukee through the decades.
1: With this being the 50th anniversary, it is remarkable that we're still discussing Happy Days. I mean, there's very few sitcoms of that time that have had that kind of longevity.
0: We'll learn about the lasting impact of the Green Book. This whole system was in
2: place to stop 1.2 million black veterans from taking advantage of probably the greatest social welfare program in the history of this country.
0: Plus, look back on some of the best local music that came out in 2023. All that's coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski, thanks for joining us. We'll start with capital Notes. WUWM's Chuck Kornbach is standing in for Mayon Silver. He speaks with JR Ross from Wisp Politics about whether or not medical marijuana will be a possibility
3: here in Wisconsin, and the latest on redistricting maps. From Milwaukee's NPR, this is Capital Notes. We break down the big political news affecting Wisconsin. I'm Chuck Quernbach, filling in for Mayan Silver, speaking with J.R. Ross, editor of wispolitics.com. Here's our latest conversation. Well, hi, J.R. Welcome to the It Really Feels Like Winter uh, edition of Capital Notes. Yes, it does. Well, you know, that doesn't mean the legislature hasn't been busy, uh, Last week, there was a proposal for a medical marijuana bill, and then later on in the week, there was criticism of the Republican proposal, or at least concern about it from another Republican. Where do things stand now on medical marijuana?
4: Uh, Well, there's a bill out there. I just don't know if it's going to go anywhere. So let's pull back big picture. Robin Voss, the Assembly Speaker, has been talking about medical marijuana for about seven years now, saying he's opened the idea. But he's faced various pushback from the Senate Majority Leaders, uh, first Scott Fitzgerald, then Devin Lemihue. A year ago, Devin indicated that he was maybe open to it, that it could get done uh, sometime this session. And now we have a bill introduced by Robin Voss. The issue is, though, Senate Republicans have a number of concerns about that bill, particularly the approach. Uh, Mary Felskowski is a state senator from up in Irma, a northern Wisconsin Republican She's been the lead advocate on medical marijuana among Senate Republicans for a while now. Uh, It tells you something when she's not a co-sponsor of the bill. In fact, there's no Senate co-sponsor of the bill. And that's important for a couple of reasons. One, you have to pass a bill through both houses of the legislature in the same form to get it through. Without a Senate co-sponsor, there's nobody to kind of shepherd that bill or to advocate for it in the Senate. Um, If you don't have the lead kind of advocate for medical marijuana on your bill, that's another possible red flag. And then Devin Lemahue during luncheon we had last week, said that there's a provision in Robin's bill that's a non-starter. That is that Robin wants to have uh, dispensaries be state-run. So first off, this is probably one of the most restrictive medical marijuana bills that's out there, uh, the approach at least. And what Robin's calling for is to have these five state-run dispensaries. You'd only have a certain number of ailments for which you could qualify for medical marijuana. Then You'd have to you know, uh, be a licensed producer and whatnot through the state. And then it would be state-run dispensaries. Well, Republicans, A, don't really care for growing government, and B, don't like the idea of the government doing something the private sector could. The argument that I've heard from some is that, you know, Voss's approach is over a concern about going toward full legalization. Having a state-run dispensary, you're not going to have, for example, private dispensaries with billboards uh, calling for you to come out and check out medical marijuana at their store. You know, there's less of an incentive to grow your customer base and to maybe move toward full legalization. So that might be part of the reason why he's doing it. But if you think about this also big picture politically, Republicans have struggled on marijuana with the uh, voters. Uh, Looking at the Marquette Law School poll, we've seen overwhelming support for both medical marijuana and full legalization. Republicans aren't there on the ladder. So they're trying to find something they can put out there to say, hey, we're moving on this issue. We we hear you, but we're not going to go all the way there, but to at least try to address it. And the impression I get from some folks is they think Robin Voss put out this bill, basically for political cover. Yes, his heart may want to see medical marijuana, but this is more about politics and is about getting something done this session, especially if lawmakers are set to go home by the end of February in the Assembly and mid-March in the Senate.
3: Yeah, uh, though I was kind of touched by the stories uh, at the uh, Voss news conference in South Milwaukee. Jesse Rodriguez, representative from Oak Creek, talked about a constituent uh, whose wife is very ill and wants medical marijuana. Representative Mako from the Green Bay Area was down at South Milwaukee telling this very uh, poignant story about his late wife being ill and suggesting perhaps they had illegally obtained some marijuana to help her through the pain. It's a strong issue. If they're just doing politics on it, that's really raw stuff.
4: Well, that's kind of how it works in the Capitol sometimes. If you can't get something done, at least get a bill out there to give yourself some cover so they can go out now and say, look, they can put on a mail piece that we addressed. We tried to pass medical marijuana. Now it also could be a negotiating tactic. Maybe, you know, the thoughts out there that Robin Voss put this bill out there to try and pressure the Senate to move to see what they would come up with as a counter. You know, that's always part of politics is the push and shove. But, you know, there's a mix of politics and policy and everything that happens in the Capitol. And that's the case here as well.
3: Well, since you mentioned Robin Voss, a uh, Republican from Racine County, Assembly Speaker, and now target of a recall uh, attempt from someone in his district, uh, what do we know about that, and does it stand much of a chance?
4: Well, there are a number of hurdles for the folks who are doing this. Number one, you have to collect uh, base amounts to 25% of the votes cast in the district in the last control election in terms of signatures. So for the people doing this, They've got to collect 6,850 valid signatures in within 60 days. That's not an easy task. Add in the fact that it's January and you're going to February to do this. There's going to be a polar vortex upon us that is not going to encourage a lot of people to go outside for a week. I mean, every day is precious. You oh, know, by the way, you know, looking at Robbins Assembly District, there aren't a lot of huge population centers. You know, Burlington's 11,000 people. Union Grove, about 5,000. of about 7,000. So it makes it harder to find people that sign nomination papers out into the public. So there's that hurdle. Two, we have a legal hurdle. The state Supreme Court, member threw out the maps we currently have saying they're unconstitutional. As part of that order, it issued a directive to the Elections Commission barring it from holding elections under those lines. The Elections Commission, as we speak right now, is trying to figure out, can you even be recalled if there's no map? So that's a challenge for the people doing this. And, you know, there are folks in the Capitol who try to dismiss them as, you know, kind of fringe people, kind of, uh, not to be taken seriously. But don't forget, these folks are also attached to a group that put up $350,000 in TV, radio, and mail the last several months targeting Robin Voss over their desire to impeach Megan Wolf, the state top election official. So these guys have resources. The question is, do they have the organization and the volunteers to collect the signatures? And even if they do, then do they have the ability to beat Robin Voss in an election? Are a lot of big questions. And you know, we have experienced recalls in Wisconsin. Don't forget, obviously, in 2011, 2012, we had a series of them. What we learned is voters typically don't really like to vote somebody out in a recall unless they did something illegal or immoral. You know, you know Scott Walker survived and by a bigger margin than he won in 2010, and part of the thought was, hey, voters feel like unless you did something really wrong, I'm not going to turn you out. It's because of a policy d- disagreement, okay? So with Robin Voss, the arguments to recall him, according to the petitioners, are... Um, blocking election integrity, not impeaching Megan Wolf and opposing Donald Trump. Well, if you ask most people in Wisconsin who Megan Wolf is, they'll give you a blank stare. Uh, now, she's a very important person. She's the Elections Commission Administrator, but people don't really know who she is, by name at least. And so you're asking people to kind of recall them over that. I'm in talking to people. They're not sure that's really going to be a big motivator for people. And if you are going to get enough signatures to recall Robin Voss— you need kind of typical Republican voters, people who normally support him. In the primary, in 2022, they survived by 260 votes. Adam Steen got less than 5,000 votes. So you got to find everybody who voted for Adam Steen, basically, and add 1,800 people more, 1,700 people more to get to your target number. That's not an easy task. There are a, lot of, a lot of hurdles. So people are kind of like interested in what's going on but not sure what to make of it. At the same time, whenever you have somebody facing something like this, the question becomes, will Robin Voss make decisions that are best for his caucus or for himself? Because his political future is on the line here. Most leaders have a roadmap of what they want to do legislatively, politically. Um, Will Robin file that? Will he be tossed out the window because he's got to save his own skin? Those are big questions that are facing him as he, you know, tries to fend off this recall election.
3: Yeah, I told my boss that, well, I'd be happy to go out and take a look at this recall effort, but you know, maybe wait for a warm day at the end of February or either that or have the WWM parka and snow boots on.
4: Yeah, it's going to be a challenge. So, you know, the Democratic Party, look, they pulled it off. They, they got the signatures a dozen years ago, but they had armies of people and they hit up population centers to do it. This is a, a much different animal for these guys to try and get the signatures needed to recall Robin Voss.
3: And we also spoke a moment ago of the state Senator Lemihue, a Republican of Oostburg up in Sheboygan County. Uh, He's got some tax cuts uh, in mind that he's told with politics recently, right?
4: Yeah, he wants to look at expanding one of the brackets. You know, Governor Evers vetoed some tax cuts that Republicans had proposed in the budget. He's rejected calls to go back and revisit that decision. So Devin's trying to find a way around that. Uh, We've got a projected $4 billion surplus at the end of this biennium in mid 2025. Now, a chunk of that will probably get eaten up by a deal that Robin Voss struck with the University of Wisconsin officials about curtailing DEI. Now that deal includes about $400 million in state money go toward building projects. So let's say we got 3.6 billion, right? That we've got probably sitting there. Devin's talking about another billion dollar in tax cuts. Governor Evers has said he's concerned about eating up too much of that money that would lead the state in a possible predicament when it goes in the 2025-27 budget. So I'm not sure if they're gonna reach an agreement, but you're gonna see that proposal from Lemahue. There's talk about trying to do tax cuts for retirement income, all kinds of other stuff, because it's an election year. We got money sitting around the state's main checking account. They always find a way to either spend it or try and give it back. I don't know they're gonna agree on how to do that, but there'll be ideas kicked around in the next couple of months before lawmakers leave in end of February, in, a, in middle of March
3: all while they're keeping one eye, I bet, on the legislative redistricting case. Uh, the state Supreme Court last week said, no, we're not going to reconsider our decision to ask for new maps. Uh, what's coming up in the next week or two on that?
4: Well, we've got maps submitted by the various parties. We've got the consultants who hired by the liberal majority of the Supreme Court that has a, a report due February 1st, um, kind of evaluating those maps. Then we go from there. The one thing I'm watching is if and when Republican lawmakers go to the U.S. Supreme Court and file a petition asking those justices to step in and stop what's happening in Wisconsin. You saw in that motion for reconsideration rejected last week the hints of what they would argue that, among other things, the state Supreme Court prejudged the case, uh, didn't give way to their arguments, violated due process rights. So we know something is coming, or we expect something to come from them to the U.S. Supreme Court. The question is when and do, do those justices step in and hear that case.
3: Keep that parka zipped up, and we'll look forward to more discussion with you. Hey, take care. That was J.R. Ross of wispolitics.com speaking with me, WUWM's Chuck Kornbach. Check out the Capital Notes podcast wherever you get your podcasts. That was WUWM's
0: Chuck Kornbach standing in for Myon Silver speaking with J.R. Ross of Wispolitics. You can hear Capital Notes every other Monday on Lake Effect. We want to hear from you as we gear up to cover local elections and the presidential election in November. You can have a say in our 2024 election coverage by filling out our election survey. You can find the link at wuwm.com. What you tell us will help inform the stories you hear on Lake Effect and WUWM. Later in the show, we'll explore some of the best music made by local musicians over the past year. But first, we'll take a look back on happy days and whether those days were really that happy for Milwaukee. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM Milwaukee's NPR. To Lake Effect on 89.7 WWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. 50 years after audiences first heard this theme song for the sitcom Happy Days, we're still humming along to it. The show first premiered on January 15, 1974, and ran for 11 seasons with a total of 255 episodes. Set in Milwaukee, Happy Days centered around Richie Cunningham, played by Ron Howard, his family, and his high school friends, with Fonzie being one of the most notable characters, of course. Milwaukee has a mixed relationship with Happy Days and its cultural impact. Archer Parquette wrote all about it in this month's Milwaukee Magazine in honor of the show's 50th. Archer joins me now. Hey, welcome back to Lake Effect.
1: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: So I want to take us back to 2008, just before the Bronze Fonz was going to be unveiled. While it's generally known that Henry Winkler is a lovely, genuine person, we do love him here in Milwaukee. Some people in Milwaukee were not so excited about his likeness being a part of our city's landscape. Why was that?
1: Yeah, it can be a little bit difficult to remember now that it's been so many years and the, the statue has become just sort of a part of the Milwaukee cultural landscape. Um, But at the time, there was actually quite a bit of controversy. Um, So Visit Milwaukee uh, sponsored the the statue. And uh, at the time, the idea was that it would promote some tourism in Milwaukee by uh, setting up this sort of cultural figure. Um, But a lot of folks in Milwaukee, especially in the fine art community, thought it was a little bit kitsch that it sort of took away from the real cultural scene in Milwaukee, um, you know, with the Milwaukee Art Museum being nearby. Um, So there was quite a bit of debate about, first off, where it would be located, to avoid taking away from other artistic things, and then about whether we even wanted it at all. Um, And if you look back at the journal Sentinel at the time, there were uh, op-eds and letters to the editor that get, you know, surprisingly vicious about um, the statue. One that I uh, quoted in uh, the story I wrote for Milwaukee Magazine was, said that the bronze fawns is a symbol of how backwards the city is and the decisions that people are making which, you know, kind of cuts a little bit deeper than you expect from a Henry Winkler statue. Um, But yeah, it was, it ended up being uh, about a year of sort of back and forth controversy over it before uh, in 2008, it was finally unveiled.
0: Yeah, now I feel like we pass by it and we like, oh, look, there it is. So it's not really a a hot topic
1: now. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, one piece that came out at the time that uh, I think sort of hit the nail on the head was by uh, Jim Stingle, columnist for the journal Sentinel. Um, He said that uh, the statue won't solve all the city's problems, but then again, it won't worsen them either. It's just a bit of harmless fun. And I think that's pretty much proven itself to be the case.
0: Absolutely. So you did a lot of deep dive into Happy Days on its 50th anniversary for this piece. But before you were going into this and researching, what was your impression or feeling about Happy Days?
1: Um, Yeah, I'm a bit younger than the folks who grew up um, watching it. But I did actually watch quite a bit of it when I was a kid. Uh, My parents were fans of it back when it was airing. um, And so it was we watched quite a few reruns. I have a very strong memory of Fonzie. Um, I think, like everyone who watched the show, Fonzie sort of was the standout. And for, you know, a little boy, it's sort of like, well, man, I hope I can grow up to be like Fonzie one day. But yeah, I I enjoyed it. Um, I think there's a lot of universality in it that, you know, a kid today can still sort of see what's funny about the group of teenagers.
0: Yeah, it's definitely the family and the group of teenagers that is the center of the show and not so much Milwaukee. You know, Milwaukee as a whole, we have kind of a mixed relationship with Happy Days. But before we get into that whole thing, let's start with the decision to set the show in Milwaukee. And I say set with air quotes very loosely. <laughs> Why'd they pick Milwaukee?
1: Yeah, so I think using air quotes there is very fitting. Anyone from Milwaukee who's seen the show uh, pretty much knows it's, an, it's not much of a Milwaukee show. Um, so the show was created by Gary Marshall, who was, he passed away in 2020. Uh, he was a legendary TV producer. He was behind The uh, Odd Couple, among many more shows. And in the early 70s, he wanted to create sort of a more family values type of show, sort of a nostalgic 50s piece. Um, And he filmed a pilot with Ron Howard and Anson Williams, who went on to play Potsy in Happy Days. Um, But the network that he pitched it to, ABC, uh, didn't think it was worth picking up, and so it was just shelved. But then in 1973, George Lucas's American Graffiti uh, made a huge amount of money at the box office. And at the same time, Grease was on Broadway. So there was this trend of 50s nostalgia pieces doing really well, Uh, and the network went back to Gary Marshall and asked him, could you try to do something new with this uh, 50 set story that you had worked on? So he, along with two other producers, uh, Ed Milkis and Tom Miller, who's the most important one for the Milwaukee connection, um, got together to uh, create this new show that would be set in the 50s and take advantage of this sort of moment that the culture was having. Um, But they didn't know where they were gonna set it. So I talked to Anson Williams a little bit about this. Uh, He told me a funny story That seems very apocryphal, but he said that they flipped a coin to decide where it was going to be set. Ed Milkis was from Los Angeles, Gary was from New York, and Tom was from Milwaukee. Um, And so they were deciding between the three. Um, Another explanation I've heard was that Gary initially wanted it set in his hometown in New York, but the network thought uh, New York would be too ethnic, too urban, and that it wouldn't capture the Midwest feel that the show was going for. Um, So they ended up going with Tom's hometown of Milwaukee. And for a little more on on Tom Miller, who obviously is the reason it ended up here. He was born in the city. He grew up in in Whitefish Bay. Um, He was actually in the first graduating class of Nicolette High School. And then he went to UW-Madison to study drama. And then after that, he moved to Los Angeles and and started working in television. And he was uh, pretty much responsible for everything Milwaukee in the show. He also has passed away, but I spoke to a number of the cast members who mentioned sort of his love for his hometown and that he tried to lace that in where he could.
0: Yeah, there's small components where it's laced in like college banners, jackets, that sort of thing. But, you know, there's never a a huge strong sense of place, at least to my eyes. But correct me if I'm wrong, but did the show even shoot any B-roll here in Milwaukee? What are some stark and obvious things about the city in the 1950s, that really doesn't get represented in Happy Days.
1: No, as far as I'm aware, um, nothing was ever shot here. So obviously all the interiors in Happy Days were shot on a soundstage in uh, Los Angeles, but even the exterior shots where in other shows you might expect a uh, skyline where it's set or a street shot were also, we're not from Milwaukee. Um, the Cunningham home was a house in, in LA about a few blocks from where they were shooting the actual show. So really, there was um, not much representation for Milwaukee. Uh, One person I spoke to for the story was uh, Michael Newman, who's a professor at UW-Milwaukee, who actually wrote an article about the show um, about 12 years ago. And the way he put it was that uh, Milwaukee was really more of a negation of place than a place itself, which is a very uh, academic way to put it. But um, the idea is that it's a stand-in for Midwestern family values, sort of ideals, as opposed to uh, an actual place. I also spoke to um, John Goethe for this story, who, if you don't know, is sort of the preeminent historian in the city. Um, and he was growing up in the 50s. So he was uh, saw sort of the time when he grew up when the show aired. And uh, he says that uh, he never saw anything of His experience reflected in the show, which is kind of a universal thing when, if you talk to anyone in Milwaukee who grew up in the 50s. Yeah,
0: and there's one thing in particular I want to debunk. I'm on the South Side, I live by Leon's Custard, and everyone always associates Leon's Custard with Happy Days. But to my memory, there's no shots of Leon's Custard. Like maybe the design is the most 1950s, but does it have any true association with the show?
1: So there's a little bit of a yes and no to that answer. Um, so Leon's no was not the inspiration for the drive-in in happy days. Um, it's not featured in happy days. The reason from what I've heard that it developed this um, very persistent myth that it is the drive-in in happy days is because of all the drive-ins in Milwaukee, it arguably looks the most fifties. If there was one that was going to be in happy days, it would be that one. But there is some truth to the drive-in idea in happy days. So Tom Miller, who I mentioned earlier, the producer on the show, He was a frequenter at the Milky Way drive-in in in Glendale during the 50s. Uh, It no longer exists. It was torn down, but it's now uh, the location of the Glendale cops. So that um, was a very close model for what ended up being Arnold's in Happy Days. And from um, most of the folks I spoke to, that drive-in and the uh, culture around it, especially around teenagers and hanging out around there, uh, was actually very authentic to the experience in Milwaukee.
0: So we've kind of established that the show doesn't really reflect the Milwaukee of the time, Um, you know, and being set in 1950s, Nostalgia Land definitely gave people an escape to the national time of protests. There was housing marches here in Milwaukee, Vietnam, all these things, but was Happy Days just kind of following the trend of harnessing that power of nostalgia when it aired during such a tumultuous time?
1: In many ways, yes, it was. So if you want to see sort of why Happy Days was so successful, like you said, it's useful to look to the 60s um, right before it aired in um, the early 70s. The 60s, like you mentioned, were full of all these tumultuous events in civil rights and and, then gender equality and the war in Vietnam. And it sort of shook up America in many ways, especially folks who maybe were a little more comfortable in the 50s. Um, So it created this market for people who wanted to go back to a time that they could sort of look on nostalgically as being uh, more simple without these um, almost confusing and alarming social events that were going everywhere. And at the same time, in the late 60s and very early 70s, TV was leaning into that counterculture. There were shows like uh, All in the Family or MASH. Some of them were expressly anti-war. There were uh, political debates going on on screen. Um, All in the family, for one, had the very conservative Archie Bunker, was always arguing with his son-in-law. So these sort of uncomfortable things that were happening in reality were not escapable in many of these shows. Um, And Happy Days sort of dove far in the other direction to give people that uh, comfort food television.
0: And I suppose comfort food definitely factors into the show's longevity.
1: I think absolutely. Yeah. I think both as just sort of something that people have enjoyed for years. Um, One thing that Gary Marshall said uh, in an interview was that his goal for the show was that parents and kids could watch it together. So in the sort of anodyne nature of it is built in something that uh, multi-generations can enjoy together. And I think that, I mean, even for me personally, in the uh, early 2000s, watching it with my parents, Um, It was something that could still be enjoyed when sort of other media maybe wouldn't make as much sense. So I think the family friendliness, the uh, anodyne nature sort of has kept it uh, going for years now. Um, And I don't think I mentioned this, but with this being the 50th anniversary, it is remarkable that we're still discussing happy days. I mean, there's very few sitcoms of that time that have had that kind of longevity.
0: That's very true. And, you know, over the course of this last 50 years, Milwaukee has obviously changed a lot. So do you think we're at a point where our association with Happy Days no longer hinders or really impacts our sense of
1: identity? I think we are very much heading in that direction. I think from the folks that I've talked to, um, some folks who were around when Happy Days was airing have a little bit more of a wariness about it. They feel that sort of, this isn't Milwaukee. I don't like that we're the city everyone knows for happy days. Younger folks are not so much. It's more of a fun fact that this show uh, was set here and, you know, the Fonz was here and we have his statue. Um, I think Milwaukee is, and I'm far from the first person to say it, but has really been sort of coming into its own in recent years, uh, experiencing something of a, a renaissance. And all those folks who were sort of arguing about if culture would be sidelined by the Bronze fawns being Uh, set up on the Riverwalk. Clearly it hasn't. Culture's really had a boom in that decade since the the statue went up.
0: Well, maybe we can campaign and see if a statue of Laverne and Shirley would get the same reaction, because that show's probably a little more accurate to what we were then.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yep, definitely. Laverne and Shirley working at uh, Schatz Brewery.
0: Awesome. Well, Archer, thanks so much for joining me to talk happy days and, you know, keep that longevity going 50 years on.
1: Definitely. Thank you.
0: Archer Parquette is the managing editor at Milwaukee Magazine. You can read his article on the 50th anniversary of Happy Days, and if those days were really all that happy in this month's issue of Milwaukee Magazine.
3: It comes true, that you love me, of where there's it's you are. The
0: The Green Book was mainly used during the Jim Crow era as a guide for black motorists and travelers to find places throughout the country where they could safely dine, sleep, or seek other services. Derek Mosley, the director of the Marquette University Law School's Lubar Center for Public Policy Research and Civic Education, shares some history about the Green Book with former Lake Effect producer Mallory Chang.
5: So just to start right off, Mosley, what exactly was the Green Book?
2: In a part of American history, which we refer to as the Jim Crow era, and I think a lot of people are familiar with the term the Jim Crow era. They remember seeing water fountains that said whites only or colored only and different types of entrances into public accommodations, things of that nature. Well, what people don't know, and I think I should go into this a little bit, is why it was called Jim Crow, how they became Jim Crow laws. And it all dates back to an actor back in the 1800s, a vaudeville actor by the name of Thomas Dartmouth Rice. And Thomas Rice was a white man who would portray one character and that character made him insanely famous. And that character's name was Jim Crow. And Jim Crow was a newly freed enslaved black man. And so Thomas Rice would portray that character in blackface So he would use either black grease paint or burnt cork and put it on his face. And he would wear ripped up clothes. He would talk in broken English. He would get into all these little adventures. It was all these things, all these stereotypes that have kind of like followed Black people throughout the ages are all sort of traced back to this character, Jim Crow. And so legislators, specifically in the South, wanted to separate the races And so they used Jim Crow and Jim Crow became a euphemism for black people. And they would said, you know, you don't want to drink out of that water fountain that Jim Crow drank out of because Jim Crow is dirty and you don't want to sleep in the hotel bed that Jim Crow slept in because Jim Crow is dirty and his clothes are ratty. And so it became we have to separate ourselves from Jim Crow. And so that's why we had these Jim Crow laws. That's how they got their name. And so during that time, Black Americans were starting to branch out, right? And leave the South and starting to head up North and and even traveling throughout the South as well. And the problem was we had these Jim Crow laws. And unfortunately, you might stumble into a town and it was time for you to go to sleep and there was no hotel or motel that would let you come in. Or you would go into a restaurant and with your family to have a meal and the owner would come out and kick you and your family out. And so it was embarrassing for families. And so a man by the name of Victor Green invented this book, which was originally called the Negro Motorist Green Book, but we all shortened it to just the Green Book. And this book was just made up of all these places in the country where Blacks were welcome to eat, where they're welcome to stay, where they could get their car fixed, where they can get gas. There were all these things that were put together, and that's how we got the Green Book. It became this guide for Black people where you could be safe. And I remember hearing stories of my family keeping a copy of the Green Book in their glove compartment because you just didn't know where you were going to be and where you could stop if things happened. So, yeah, it's a big piece of American history
5: this book was produced in a time before the civil rights movement and during the Jim Crow era. What was the impact of this book throughout the time it was published?
2: So it started around the 1930s and went to about the 1960s. The need for it kind of waned a little bit because of the civil rights movement and the civil rights acts that came along the way. So the last year it was printed was 1966. Just think about that, right? 1966 is the Last time we printed this book that outlined all the places where Black people could travel. I mean, just, just think about that, 1966. And so on, on a country that was you know founded in 1776, right? And so when you put that in perspective, that whole period of time that this book really was, like I said, a lifesaver for Black Americans. But it, it was sort of like, I, I remember a, a story I remember hearing, you just didn't leave home without it. There was something growing up in the 70s, there was like some ad, a commercial ad that said, don't leave home without it or whatever it is. And that's how the Green Book was. It was this book that if you were traveling, I mean, literally, Mallory, it could be life or death. I mean, depending on where you were traveling, you might wander onto a place where people were violent against Black people. And so it, it really was a lifesaver for a lot of people here in America.
5: I didn't learn any of this in my school education. And how can we learn from this history that we're learning to help inform our present?
2: Well, Mallory, I don't think that you are an exception to that. I think there are a lot of people who didn't know about the Green Book. In fact, when I do my Black History Month posts every February, I remember the first time I put that post about the Green Book, which was probably about 10 years ago, I put the post out and people were shocked. And every time I posted, people are shocked. Now with the movie that came out, which really wasn't about the Green Book, but the movie that came out called the Green Book, people became more aware of it, but we deal with not telling everybody's history. And it's important. I think the the significance of the Green Book today is that it allows people who aren't that young, there are people who are my age and older who didn't know about this to realize that not everybody grew up the same way. Not everybody had to deal with the same issues on a day-to-day basis. So we can learn a lot from the Green Book about the importance of inclusion and the importance of really being American.
0: Derek Mosley is the director of the Marquette University Law School's Lubar Center for Public Policy Research and Civic Education. He spoke with former Lake Effect producer, Mallory Chang in 2022. Coming up, we'll look back at some of the great songs made by Milwaukee musicians over the past year. Keep listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. All year, every year, the guys from Milwaukee Record are watching and listening to what's going on in Milwaukee's music scene. At the end of the year, they compile a list of their favorite songs, EPs, and LPs, among many other categories. Milwaukee Record co-founder Matt Wild says 2023 was truly a year for the record books. He joins Like Effect's Joy Powers to share some of his favorite things from the past year.
5: Every year, you create this list of music from the past year. At one time, it was uh, what we would consider a classic kind of best of list, but for the last couple of years, you've had a different take.
6: Yeah, when we first started Milwaukee Record, now so many years ago, uh, we launched back in 2014, so uh, 2024 would be our 10 year anniversary back when we were uh maybe uh younger and more foolhardy we uh we did at the end of the year our best milwaukee albums and best milwaukee music list and ranked everything you know this was the you know 17th best milwaukee album of the year and this was the number 1 you know the best one you know, I don't know. I think just in general, in music writing in general, across the board, that kind of has gone away. And people have gone to more just personal favorites. And that's what we've been doing for the past few years. Uh, at the end of the year, we put together a list of our favorite Milwaukee music of uh, of the year. And uh, favorite, again, is the uh, the operative word there. So uh, these, you know, aren't ranked or anything. This is just stuff that really uh, stuck with me and uh, my partner Milwaukee record, Tyler Moss. It's. I, th- I think it's more fun to write about that kind of stuff. It's. You can write about it in a more personal way sometimes, and it's not so clinical, and you're not worrying about, oh, what's number 15 and what's number 14? And uh, I don't miss those days at all. So
5: we're going to go over a few of uh, your favorites. If people are interested in Tyler's favorites, they can check out Milwaukee Record. Uh, But we'll start with a a pretty typical category, I'd say, for favorite uh, music. Uh, Favorite Milwaukee LPs.
6: Absolutely. Favorite Milwaukee full-length albums and the definition between full-length and EP length, uh, it kind of... Comes and goes sometimes. I don't know. It's not a scientific uh, delineation, but uh, we try our best. So one of my favorite uh, LPs of the year was a a debut by uh, a band called Jinxie. And I believe we've talked about Jinxie before on this segment. Uh, Jinxie is this great kind of uh, Milwaukee punk rock trio Uh, made up of some, like, real veterans that have been around the scene for a while. Uh, Amelinda Burrish and uh, Wendy Norton, Uh, they put together, top to bottom, just a fantastic record. It is a self-titled record. If you like good, kind of lo-fi, really catchy, earwormy punk, you're going to love Jinxie. I think it's uh, just such a fantastic album. If I had to pick my favorite, favorite, favorite LP of the year, eh, it might be Jinxie. So uh, it's uh, absolutely fantastic. Uh, Another one that I really loved this year was the uh, big debut from Scam Likely. They put out a record called Getting Worse. Scam Likely is a very, very young band. Uh, They've only been around for a couple of years. Uh, They released a few singles in 2022, and this year they uh, released their first kind of official debut. Really, really fantastic album, kind of a, a gothic tinged punk foursome here. Uh, they have uh, some a, a really great song called Domestic Bliss, which was uh, one of my favorite songs of the year as well. Absolutely check out Scam, likely. Another great LP of the year that I really, really loved, and I believe we did talk about uh, it a little uh, in the past, is uh, Ladies Please from uh, the great Vincent Van Great. Uh, Vincent Van Great has been around Uh, For a number of years now, a couple of years ago, he put out a great kind of R&B record with uh, Amanda Huff. Uh, That was called Troublemakers. And this year, Vincent Van Great came out with his, uh, not his first uh, solo full length, but uh, it's his first in a while. And like I said, it's called Ladies Please. And it is uh, just a a really great poppy R&B kind of dance record uh, there's some really terrific songs on here uh, see you dance is a great kind of like club song they're kind of sexy and fun songs on this record as well girls is a great song forever girl is another one uh, and he has a lot of great guests on this album too including uh amanda huff who's he's worked with before uh sister strings the great sister strings they appear on this record the great classic he's on here genesis renji paper holland Uh, A whole bunch of folks appear on uh, this fantastic record from Vincent Van Grade that's called Ladies Please. So those are uh, three of uh, my favorite uh, LPs of uh, 2023.
5: So uh, on the flip side of that, I guess, uh, we have the favorite Milwaukee EPs of the year.
6: Yeah, shorter releases, typically about uh, four or five songs, something like that. Uh, one that came out uh, not too long ago this year was uh, a great EP by Chinese Telephones, and it's called Out of My Hands. Chinese Telephones may ring a bell if you've been a, a long time Milwaukee music fan because uh, they put out a self titled full length record way back in 2007. And that was about it. They've been uh, they've been playing out since then, but uh, haven't released any new material in the, you know, ensuing 15 years. But suddenly, near the end of 2023, they came out with this great EP called Out of My Hands. Just a, a great kind of punk rock record, again. And uh, features, again, a lot of uh, Milwaukee music veterans, Daniel James, uh, Andy Junk, the great Andy Junk. Uh, who plays in another uh, great Milwaukee punk band uh, whose name I can't say on the radio. But uh, it was uh, kind of a big surprise that Chinese Telephone suddenly came out with uh, some new material. So uh, they put out a great EP. It's called Out of My Hands. Uh, Another one that I really, really liked uh, that came out very early in the year was an EP by Lady Cannon. And that was called Take It Out on Me. Uh, Lady Cannon is the kind of solo project of Martha Cannon. And uh, Martha Cannon is someone I've talked about a lot in uh, recent years. Uh, She did a lot of fantastic music with the kind of tropical pop group La Resorts. And uh, she's always put out also kind of her solo music under the Lady Cannon moniker. And uh, she put out just a a really heartbreakingly gorgeous EP this year. Like I said, it's called Take It Out On Me. Uh, Martha has kind of teased that this may be the final release for Lady Cannon, I hope that's not the case. If it is, I hope she continues uh, to make music because whether alone or uh, with a group, uh, she's always fantastic. Uh, Another fantastic EP that came out this year from uh, some uh, Milwaukee music veterans was an EP from Raina. Uh, and it's called Limonada and uh, Reina, made up of sisters Vic and Gab, uh, previously known as Vic and Gab. They've been around for a long, long time, kind of rebranded themselves as Reina, maybe in 2016, 2017, and uh, have put out a stream of singles ever since then, very poppy, very glossy, very high-production kind of singles, And uh, with this release, Limonada, um, they uh, have kind of cut ties. They had previous ties with kind of major labels and they were recording in uh, kind of L.A. studios and really doing it up. But for this one, I think they're just kind of back to basics. They're back to releasing uh, their music themselves. And uh, it really shows uh, not that the songs are, you know, any less quality, but uh, they feel much more intimate and, uh, you know, not so beholden to be kind of big crowd-pleasing kind of dance hits. Reina, it's called Limonada. Another great EP uh, from a band that uh, I was introduced to uh, for the first time this year, a group called Riot Nine, and they put out a really bracing and uh, very, very heavy, very, very loud uh, Screamo album called Death Before Detransition a record that uh, really kind of uh, draws a line in the sand, kind of the ongoing war against the LGBTQIA community, and uh, this is a group made up of a lot of trans members, and uh, they even call uh, the, their type of music, uh, instead of scrams, which is kind of another word for screamo, uh, they have a song called Scrams Gender, and a lot of their songs are about that a lot of their songs uh like i said it's a very very uh, bracing very very angry and a very very fantastic record it is uh the musicianship on this record is fantastic they have uh, become really in the past year a real live force as well so that is uh riot 9 with uh their ep death before transition and finally there was another great ep uh, released by a group called sex scenes uh great google name there, Sex Scenes, and uh, they put out a record called Fed Up, and that just came out uh, a few weeks ago, really. This group has been around for a little while. Uh, They have a new singer now, and uh, she's terrific, and uh, again, it's a real short, uh, very, very short uh, EP. I think the whole thing is over in about five minutes, and it's a very kind of Another kind of hardcore, very loud, bracing record, but uh, also very, very good and uh, has some songs that are just stuck in my head. That is uh, the latest from sex scenes, and it's called Fed Up.
5: So there are a lot of other categories, a lot that I think people uh, might not immediately think of as being on a favorite list. Uh, there is Matt's favorite uh, Milwaukee LP made by a band named after a long vacant supper club outside of Beaver Dam. I assume that they're is only one band that, that covers that.
6: You'd be surprised. <laughs> there, there, there's dozens, really, yeah. Uh,
5: you know, Matt, Matt's favorite Promise run cover by a fellow Milwaukee artist of 20, 2023. Uh, if you want to see all of Matt's picks, again, you can head to uh, Milwaukee Record. Uh, but as we look at the year that was 2023 in Milwaukee music, what would you say have been the overarching narratives of this music scene?
6: as someone who's been paying attention to the Milwaukee music scene for for many many years now there's always kind of ups and downs and there's always bubbles and there's always a time when there's you know kind of new groups coming along and a lot of excitement and then they you know things calm down after that and they become the established artists and then another new crop will come up and everyone gets excited uh we're definitely in that kind of up that bubble right now and we have been for the past couple of years But what I think is very, very different about uh, this current bubble is that there is a lot of excitement, the most excitement I've seen surrounding the Milwaukee music scene in a long, long time. And I think that's due to the pandemic. And there are two groups uh, that uh, put out some of my favorite LPs that I didn't mention up top, and that would be Bug Moment and Ratbath. And they really signify, I think... This kind of pandemic fueled excitement. Both of these groups kind of were getting their starts in about 2020. And just as they were about to kind of, you know, really explode and get in, and start playing out live, of course, the pandemic happened and live shows weren't happening for a year or year and a half or whatever it was. Not only could these groups and groups like them not play out, their fans, people that were fans of these groups, could not go out and see them. So when things finally started getting back to normal and clubs starting having live shows again, there was all this pent up excitement for for groups like this. It came to a head in 2023, and both of these groups that I mentioned, uh, Bug Moment and Rat Bath, put out records this year that really solidified them as kind of at the forefront of this, you know, kind of pandemic fueled excitement in the in the Milwaukee music scene. Uh, Bug Moment put out a fantastic record called The Flying Toad Circus. And Ratbath put out another uh, fantastic record called Call Me a Monster. And like I said, uh, there have always been ups and downs in the scene, but this up feels really, really different. And like I said, I think it's because of all that pent-up excitement. And uh, not only that, uh, another thing that I think has contributed to that excitement is the the sudden uh, proliferation of all-ages shows, which for a long, long time, Milwaukee was really kind of a a desert for all-ages shows at clubs. And that's changed in recent years, too, thanks to people, uh, thanks to venues like the Cactus Club, uh, X-Ray Arcade, and uh, the Paps Theatre Group as well. Really, uh, in fact, you know, changing some laws to make sure that all ages shows uh, can happen in uh, venues that, uh, you know, are also bars. And so you have a lot, a lot of young folks being able to play at places like this. And that obviously just builds even more excitement. So... It's been a big, big year for uh, Milwaukee music, and like I said, it it feels very, very different than the other kind of up years of the past. So um, this was a great year, and I think 2024, I I can only imagine that it's going to be even better.
5: Well, here's looking forward to 2024. Matt Wilde, as always, thank you for joining us here on Lake Effect.
0: Thanks for having me. Matt Wild is the co-founder of Milwaukee Record and a regular Lake Effect contributor. He spoke with Joy Powers, and you can find more of their conversations at wuwm.com. And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. If you've missed any of today's conversations or you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, simply download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll explore how Marcy's Law is being used to shield police officers and a new bill that could make it more difficult to access body camera footage. Plus, we'll help you plan a trip to the Hot Air Affair, a hot air balloon festival happening next month in Hudson, Wisconsin. That's tomorrow at noon on Lake Effect, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.